This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yes. Carlson, Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me today, as he is every week, is Brian Kahn. Hey, Elon. Hey, everybody. As always, Brian, we've got a jam-packed show. You know, sometimes I worry we're going to run out of players to talk about, but... It just throughout the week, there's so many people that we've never mentioned, or at least not this season, and I really want to talk about them. So now we have so many. Hopefully, we'll be able to fit them all in. But before we get started, we've got to mention that Keeping Carlson is presented by Daily Faceoff, your source for starting goalies and line combinations and more. If you're not following Daily Faceoff on Twitter, by the way, I highly recommend it. They are usually the first to get out news after the beat writers put it out on any lineup changes and goalie info also. Yeah, they're a pretty solid source. You know, another good source on Twitter is uh, following at Keeping Carlson. But Brian, let's get on with the show. Let's get into our fantasy hockey headlines of the week. And the first headline, this might be a bit self-serving, but last week, the first headline of the week was, does Alex Ovechkin suck? Because we have Alex Ovechkin in our pool, and he wasn't a mini slump. And basically, we talked about it, and the next thing we knew, he had a four-point game. So now I've got to move on to the next player on our team that's slumping, and I want to ask if he sucks. Does Corey Schneider suck? He's been pulled in the Devils' last two games. He started every game this season, 14 starts, six wins to show for it. So less than 50% of the time you've got Schneider starting, you're getting a win so far. In our preseason goalie preview, you said that in a keeper league, Schneider is like maybe even a top three goalie. You said in general he's like at least a top five. So far, he hasn't really shown it, or at least not lately in these last two games. What's going on with Schneider, Brian? And Elon, like Alex Ovechkin, I'm going to appeal to history to say that don't worry about Corey Schneider. He's going to be okay. Actually, this year, it's not as bad as it seems. He's ninth overall in even strength save percentage, and that's on top of, in the last three years, he is sixth amongst goalies who have played most of their team's games in that span. Where the Devils are really hurting is on the penalty kill. They have a 65.5% success rate. That's not going to last all season, and you know what? It's showing up in Corey Schneider's numbers now. Is it the Devils' penalty kill, or is it him, or some combination of both? 
that much I can't be certain, but I can tell you that Corey Schneider in penalty kill save percentage ranks 33rd out of 35 goalies who are playing regularly so far this season with just an 800 save percentage when down a man. That's not going to last. Usually you can stop maybe uh, about 87% of the shots on average when you're on the penalty kill. 89 is probably a better mark. Schneider actually has led all goalies in four on five save percentage, posting a 931 over the last three years. I wouldn't expect it maybe to get that high, although he has put it up over a consistent amount of time. But what I am saying is that's where he's suffering on the penalty kill. It's not going to sustain. You can buy low on him and feel really good about it. All right, so you're saying he's a buy low and not a bust. But when you're buying a goalie, like when you're looking at a goalie like Corey Schneider, you kind of have to look at his team, right? Even if he has a great save percentage. So fine, you're saying he's going to rebound and have a decent save percentage. What about in terms of wins? Like, are the Devils a team that's going to allow Corey Schneider to win a good number of games this season? He's going to get a lot of starts, but you know, so is Andrej Pavlic, and uh, no one's recommending picking him up for wins. So are the Devils a good team? Okay, so maybe you've got me there at even strength according to Fenwick-Stats.com. New Jersey sits 22nd in the league in shot attempts for seeing most of the shots being directed towards their net as opposed to their opponent's net. But LA, who is traditionally, you know, a top team in this category, they're 19th. The aforementioned Winnipeg is 18th. Carolina is 17th. Florida is 15th. I can keep ramming these off, but I think the point is clear by now that it's too early in the season to draw a whole lot from these numbers. Last season, they were a top five possession team in the league, and I don't think a whole lot of terrible things have happened. Yeah, they lost Mark Fain to Edmonton, but I don't think that would be enough to justify them dropping from the top five to the bottom eight in the league. There was actually an excellent article posted to tsn.ca earlier this week by Travis Yost, a fantastic analytics writer that I've enjoyed for a while. He's new to TSN, but he made a great point about the Devils not seeing a lot of luck last year despite great possession numbers, and he contrasted them with the Avalanche, who saw a lot of luck but not very good possession numbers. And it was enough to at least convince me that the Devils have probably proven themselves and will likely be an okay team this year. And we'll make sure to post the link in the show notes this week. And what did the article say about the Avalanche? Are they going to be able to rebound? No, the article suggested that the Avalanche, well, we weren't expecting them to suffer as bad as they have. Although this one in particular, as well as a few others that I also tweeted out, and if I can cobble them together, I'll also put them in the show notes, are saying that it might even get worse before it gets better in Colorado. Semyon Varlamov has been an unexpected savior by continuing to put up these numbers that probably should have regressed by now. He's still doing his part. His team is not doing theirs. Man, I feel like we talk about how the Avalanche are doing badly every week, so maybe we'll give them a break this week. That's enough about them. You mentioned the Kings earlier, which reminds me, and let's get to our second fantasy hockey headline of the week, outjuries. And this is a bit of an old one. Marion Gabbert came back around a week ago. And I was browsing the Fantasy Hockey subreddit a couple of days ago, and I saw someone post, I hate Marion Gabrick. And he wrote, he's the most useless player in my entire league thus far. And I was thinking, wait a minute, didn't he just come back? So I took a look at his stats. At that point, he had played three games so far, had zero points. I responded to the post just saying, this seems like an extreme reaction. Like, Kopitar also has no points in his last three games. Is he also useless? And 
I'm proud to say, since I wrote that, and by the way, I have 12 upvotes so far, Brian, so... Wow, what a guy. You could you could put that on your resume. <laughs> I'm a big deal. And right now, the Kings are playing their next game. It's actually not even over yet. We're recording this on Saturday night, but at this point, against the Canucks, Gabrick already has a goal and an assist, so we're already up to 0.5 points per game after four games this season. I feel like Gabrick will be fine, but Brian, let's give your overall assessment. What do you think the value is of Marion Gabrick now that he's back? I don't really understand why Gabrick should get a bad rap. I don't feel like people have much of a good reason to be down on him. Was any real justification given for this opinion? Well, no, he had played three games so far. He had zero points. He was the most useless person in his league. Is Alex Semin non-existent in his league? Maybe I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. So Marion Gabrick, let's just look back at last season. You don't even have to go very far. He had 30 points in 41 games between LA and Columbus. And on Columbus, he was kind of getting buried. He wasn't considered a part of their, you know, culture change going forward. And maybe he got painted with a, a bad brush. Also, his time in New York didn't seem to end all that well either. But over the last three years, he's a top 50 guy in points per 60 minutes, right around Rick Nash and Anja Kopitar and Andrew Ladd and Valtteri Philpula and Jason Pominville. And there's no reason why he belongs in free agency in your league or on someone's hit list for three pointless games. I feel like maybe actually he's a pretty sneaky under the radar pickup at this point in leagues that weren't really paying attention or whose owner didn't have an available IR spot and dropped him after the early season injury. He's playing on the first line right now with Anj Kopitar and they also recently returned Justin Williams. I would be very happy to have him on my team and I feel like you deserve every one of those 12 upvotes for standing up to him and then some. Yeah, and you know me, I'm also a sucker for the top power play and Gabrick is there. So just another reason why there's no reason to be down on Gabrick and already he's got a goal and assist today. Like I said, I kind of wish he was having a bad day so that we could be telling people to buy low at this point you know after one good game like this usually the buy low door slams yeah that guy will probably have posted already by now saying yeah love gabrick <laughs> okay but of course we can't have the good without the bad and with injuries come injuries and there's been some bad injuries unfortunately and when i say bad i mean in terms of like big name players and it always sucks when like one of your stars on your team goes down one name that i think we should get to first is Patrick Sharp on Chicago. He had been having a pretty good season so far, three goals and six assists in 13 games, but now it looks like he's going to be out for around a month. So too bad for Sharp owners, but of course the question we always like to ask on this podcast is when a player gets injured, usually that benefits someone on the team in terms of an increased role and increased opportunity, especially someone who's a top power play minutes getter. Someone's going to have to get those minutes. Who do you see benefiting from this on Chicago? And also, do you see anybody getting hurt? I think the person that this probably helps right now is Brandon Saad. He seems to have stepped up onto that line with Andrew Shaw and Marion Hosa. I wonder if this hurts Shaw a little more than it helps Saad, though. Maybe it evens out the differences between them because of the advantage Shaw had playing with Hosa and Sharp. Saad is actually having a good year. I know a lot of Pulis have been really into him since last season when he was expected to break out. He ended up just having a half a point per game despite having pretty good line mates and pretty good minutes. This year, he has two goals and seven assists for nine points in 14 games played so far. 30 shots on goal. That's pretty good. His on-ice shooting percentage is a little bit high. I wouldn't expect him to score nine points in every 14 games, but for now, I think it's a really good opportunity for him to keep it going 
playing with Marion Hosa. I've never been so high on Andrew Shaw. He hasn't really picked up the pace from his half a point per game that he had last year. And I wonder actually how much Marion Hosa can do with those two, because he is the clear scoring threat on that line before it used to be Shaw could go both ways to his left or to his right. And now I think it's probably going to be more to his right more often. And defenses will be focusing in more on Hosa. So that's a little bit more pressure on him to fight through whatever he's facing and put up points at the rate he's done so far, which by the way is fantastic. I saw him score his 1000th career point last week in Ottawa. It was fantastic. We all miss him here. And Brian, I'll throw out another player who I think this might be helping. The person who seems to have stepped in on that first power play is actually Brad Richards. And Richards was an interesting player going into this year because it seemed at first, like when Chicago signed him, maybe Richards would have a nice opportunity on this strong team. But, you know, he started on like the third line and for the first four games of the year, he was pointless. I'm sure he was dropped in a lot of leagues. Since then, he has seven points in his last 10 games. And like I mentioned, recently he's been getting some points on the power play. Do you think Richards is the kind of guy that, you know, maybe he has some value now while Sharp is injured, but then he'll go back to being sort of not so valuable once Sharp comes back? Or do you think Richards can keep up this pace he's putting up right now around a 60 point pace, I guess? Yeah, I think a 60 point pace is probably about right, assuming that he still gets opportunities at the beginning of the season. He was kind of buried on the third line. And like you said, that caused him a little trouble in producing. And I really am not good at speculating on where a player is going to move around during the season, dependent on injuries and other changes in the team's makeup. But there definitely is room for him looking at his underlying numbers for him to continue at the pace he's at and maybe up it just a touch. He's probably still a free agent in a lot of leagues. And if you're looking for a quick pickup, he is a good candidate, at least to watch over the next couple weeks. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's a red flag or a good thing. Like he has these seven points in his last 10 games, like I said, and with not so much actual playing time, he's getting like 11, 12, maybe 13 minutes a game. I don't know if that means, wow, he's getting all these points in such few minutes. So imagine if he got more minutes, he'll do even better. Or if it's like, oh, he's lucky to even be getting these points. And if he keeps those minutes, there's no chance. But I guess, like you say, he's definitely someone to watch. And I'm, I'm curious to see what Brad Richards will do over the next few weeks while Sharp is injured. And then maybe even more interested to see what he'll do once Sharp comes back. Let's move on to our next injury, Zach Parisi of the Minnesota Wild. He has a concussion. The timetable for his return is apparently still unclear at this point. He was having another Zach Parisi-esque season so far, 10 points in 11 games. But now he's out, and I'm very interested to know what's going to happen with the Wild. You know, they have these two pretty good lines, or at least they had these two good lines for a while. You know, they had uh, Parisi with Pominville and Granlund, and then Koivu and Vanek were there. How are things shaping out over in Minnesota? Well, it looks like Vanek gets a golden opportunity to prove his worth to his new team and teammates, stepping into Parise's spot on the first line alongside Mikhail Granlin and Jason Pominville. Now, Vanek is a bit of a funny character so far this year. Over the course of his career, he's generally averaged about three shots a game. Aside from seven shots on goal against Ottawa a few nights ago, he's only got 17 shots over 11 games. That's not even two shots on goal a night. 
but that seven shot game actually puts him at a season average of two shots a game. So maybe there's a hope that he'll be able to keep it up from there given this opportunity on the first line. The other interesting thing about Vanek so far is that he's only shooting 4.2%. His career average is about 15%. He's been a high percentage shooter for most of his career. It's fallen off a little bit over the last uh, year, actually, but that's too small a sample size to really be concerned about. So perhaps he should have triple the goal. So three goals instead of one so far this year. On the flip side, his teammates are shooting better than they should be while he's on the ice with them. He has seven assists because of it. I wouldn't expect his assist numbers to keep rising as quickly as they have been, but perhaps his point-per-game pace should stay roughly consistent to what it is now. It'll just be a different balance of goals and assists. So yeah, it does seem like a great opportunity for Vanek jumping up to the first line. Though another player on that first line is Mikhail Granlund, who I guess usurped Miku Koivu, who you would have thought, at least last season, sort of was the main guy for that spot. But Granlund is there, and he's not really having such a great year so far. One goal and four assists for five points in 12 games, even though, you know, when Parisi was healthy, he and Pominville were doing just fine, but Granlund just hasn't been picking up that many points. Is Granlund like a clear buy-low candidate at this point? Because how could he be doing so poorly with such great line mates? Or is he just, you know, playing at a pace that's probably what he's going to get for the season? Well, I'm going to reference back to that same Ottawa game, and Scott Cullen notices, now this is only one game, but he started 87.5% of his even-strength shifts in the offensive zone. He did not have a single shot attempt in 19 minutes and 30 seconds of ice time. And again, that's from Scott Cullen over at tsn.ca, his statistically speaking column, which I think I redundantly retweet because I assume that all our followers are already following him. But in case you don't see those retweets and you don't follow him, you should definitely read this column as often as it comes out, which is almost daily. It's one of my favorite non-Keeping Carlson fantasy hockey resources. And I'm that arrogant that Keeping Carlson is one of my favorite fantasy hockey resources. So basically you like following your own brain. Yeah, I tend to do that sometimes. Okay, and one more injury that I'd like to cover... Not as big a name as Parisi or Sharp, but Michael Roffel is now injured and is looking to be for quite a long while. We had mentioned him previously because he was playing on that top line on Philadelphia with Giroux and Voracek. He's down. In his place on the top line is a guy who has seen a lot of success there in the past, Wayne Simmons. Brian, now that Simmons is on the top line, I'd imagine his value just skyrockets. Yeah, and it was already really high. I don't think this is going to help you much in your pool because either you already own him or you already wish you owned him. However, if you are one of those people that owns him, this probably comes at a pretty good time for you. He had a power play goal and a power play assist on Saturday night in the Flyers' win over the Avalanche, but that was really his first meaningful production in the last 10 games or so. He had a five-game pointless drop before that, so this is a little bit of reassurance for his owners, and I feel like he tends to score in bunches. I haven't actually looked at his numbers from season to season to see if that's true, and I guess it's actually not really that relevant, especially if you're in a roto league. It doesn't matter when he gets his points, but for now, it's good news. He's on the top line with two elite players, and I count Jacob Voracek as, yes, an elite or almost elite player. And yeah, for those of you who had Raffle, you know, bad luck, but I'm hoping you just picked him up as a free agent and didn't, like, trade anything for him just because he was on the top line. And the last fantasy hockey headline that I want to bring up tonight, it's not an episode of Keeping Carlson in 2014 if we're not mentioning Tanner Pearson. 
And after we tried to tell everybody, please sell high on him when you have the chance. He has finally, you know, sort of hit that wall. He was pointless in six games going into tonight. He does have an assist tonight, so... I don't know if that means something to you. If it does, you're probably not listening carefully to this podcast. Yeah, we played a game on Twitter a little while ago where we asked our followers to let us know who they were able to trade Tanner Pearson for when they sold high. I think the most recent answer we got was Blake Wheeler. And maybe the one thing that's good about him getting a point tonight is maybe you can spark someone's interest again. You need to sell him. You do. He's not going to keep up what he's done so far. Maybe have a point per game over the course of the season. It's hard to say. There's not enough history there. And he's seeing a lot of puck luck at this point. I feel like I'm beating the same old drum, though, every single week. So let's lay off Tanner Pearson a little bit. I should also mention Tyler Toffoli tonight has a goal and two assists against a very woeful and poorly performing Vancouver Canucks squad tonight. Toffoli, I'm a little higher on than Pearson. I just want to make that clear. I don't see them equal sell-high opportunities. I do think a little bit more of Tyler Toffoli. However, he is still a good candidate to sell high on if you can get an established, keyword established, you know, 55, 60-point guy for him. All right, let's move on to some listener questions now. And let's start with Cam, who asked, I'm still new to fancy stats. I'm looking up Soderberg. His individual shot percentage is 12.5%. On ice, shot percentage is 8.91%. PDO is 973. Is he getting lucky or not? PDO would say he's rather unlucky, but individual shot percentage says he's a little high. What am I missing here? So yeah, it's tough because Brian's been telling us all of these different things. And yeah, on ice shooting percentage, if it's higher than around like 8%, usually that means the player is getting lucky. But we've also talked about how PDO, if it's under 1,000, that means they're being unlucky. So let's look at a guy like Soderberg. He's got 12 points in 15 games so far this season, and Cam's trying to figure out whether he is over or underperforming, if he's someone that you should be trying to get ASAP, or is he someone that is not worth looking at? So Brian, how do we untangle all of these numbers? I love what Carl Soderberg's been doing so far this year. It's really exciting. We saw it coming a little bit last year, especially when he was going toe-to-toe with Louis Erickson. We were all waiting for Louis Erickson to break out, and Soderberg was the guy who seemed to come out on top between those two. And Cam's question is a really good one because, yeah, his on-ice shooting percentage is, well, it's it's a little high. Right now, um, since Cam asked, it's changed a bit. It's at about 9.5%. But his PDO is still low. It's still under 100 or 1,000, depending on how you want to measure it, because his on-ice save percentage is low. His on-ice save percentage is about 889. And if you bump that by say 20 points, then his PDO would actually be a touch high. And I say 20 points because that is probably what you can expect. You can expect an on-ice save percentage at 5-on-5 to be, well, maybe about 9-15. So if you bump that up to your expected value, his PDO will show him to be a little bit lucky, and that will more accurately reflect his own on-ice shooting percentage. And yes, his shooting percentage of 12.5% is high. It's actually climbed to 14.8% on the season, and his career mark is 12.3%. However, that's under 100 games played, under 200 shots taken. He's going to have to take a few hundred more before we get a sense of where that percentage is really going to settle in at. The next listener question I want to talk about came from Jeff, and it's a pretty interesting question. He wrote, Florida has the lowest goals against in the league. It seems like this is a result of Luongo standing on his head. Is this sustainable? Should I hesitate when starting players against Luongo and Florida? 
And, you know, it's the kind of thing where I had to look and see, wait, what is he talking about? Is Luongo really doing that well? Yes, he actually is or maybe was doing that well. I actually had a similar question on Twitter from Kevin T. McNally. He asked if Luongo's performance so far this year is at all sustainable, and that hits on why the Panthers were doing so well, is because he was playing out of his mind, and I responded, this was on November 3rd, that his save percentage at even strength led the league. He was stopping 97.1% of the shots he faced. In the six days since then, his save percentage has dropped 2%, and he is now second in the league, which of course is nothing to sneeze at, but this is regression in action. He is not going to stop 97% of the shots at even strength for the entire season. For context, last season's leaders in that stat finished in the 930-940 range. He's not going to sustain this level. Where he settles at this year, I don't really know. I'm interested in finding out. He may be a good sell high if you can get a goaltender from a top 10 team who is seeing the lion's share of his team start. I think Luongo on your team is a godsend in that sense, and you're lucky for having drafted him luckier than you probably deserve to be. But hey, try and take advantage while you can. All right, so good to know that Luongo's potentially a sell high. It's interesting, though, Jeff's question was actually about whether you should start being wary of starting players playing against Florida, which to me seems kind of crazy, you know? Like, why would you ever be afraid of the Florida Panthers, like, ever in the history of the team, but especially, you know, in 2014? I guess maybe the answer is starting to become evident in their last two games. They've led in four and six goals, respectively. So definitely if you sat people against them in those games, you lost out on a lot of points. What do you think in general? Is Florida a good defensive team, you know, that you should be concerned about playing against a lot like the New York Rangers or the LA Kings? No, no. Always start your players playing against Florida. Luongo is certainly a nice upgrade from their goaltending situation last year, and he's going to stop a few more shots than usual. However... They really don't have a whole lot of depth on the back end. If you look at their top four of Brian Campbell, Aaron Ekblad, Dmitry Kulikov, and Willie Mitchell, there's not a whole lot there. Yeah, Willie Mitchell has a a decent reputation, but he's gotten quite a bit older. Brian Campbell is known for his offense. Aaron Ekblad's young. Dmitry Kulikov is proving himself. And I'm not even talking about their fifth and sixth defensemen, who are Eric Goodbranson and D. Olsen. I'm going to look that up. I'm guessing it's Dylan. Yes, it's Dylan. I know my hockey first names. Don't be afraid of this defense core. Try and play your players against Florida. Right now, they're in the middle of the pack in terms of possession numbers. I wouldn't expect that to last. I'd expect them to end up in the lower third of the league. All right. Well, thanks again for the questions, Cam and Jeff. Definitely, if you want to ask us fantasy hockey questions, uh, hit us up on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. Another way to be in touch with us is to join our Patreon group. So we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, and we've had some people sign up, and we really appreciate it. This is a way for people to support the podcast, you know, to take a step even higher than giving us a five-star review on iTunes, which is what we appreciate. And we do give something back to the people who sign up to become patrons. We have a patron-only Facebook group, which has been a lot of fun. You know, we're always talking fantasy hockey on there. When you ask a question, not only do you get a response from Brian and I, but also the other patrons are very knowledgeable, and everyone's helping each other out. We also recorded our first ever patron-only Google Hangout. We all got together on Wednesday night. We chatted for around an hour and a half. People were able to ask us questions. We were chatting. Then we made that available as a podcast for them to download afterwards. So a lot of fun happening in the Keeping Carlson patron group. We'd love for more people to sign up. So for more information on that, go to patreon.com slash 
keeping Carlson. And I'm not going to continue this pitch for much longer. I just thought this was really funny. We had someone join Nicholas, who's been listening to us for a while now, and we really appreciate it. He said his friends started favoriting the tweets that he was sending to us so that they were kind of piggybacking and sort of getting in on the knowledge of all the advice he was seeking. And by joining the Facebook group and becoming a patron, he's able to keep like his advice requests confidential, and he doesn't have to let other people in his pool know what he's talking about. So that's also a handy use if you want to go stealth. (laughs) And by the way, the last thing about the patron group, I just want to thank the people who joined last week that gave us permission to say their names. So thank you to Tyler Bentley, Jesse Severe, which is an awesome last name, by the way, Brian Morris, Stephen Aitchison, Danny Welsh, and Brian Darmstad. We really appreciate it, and we're having a lot of fun having you guys and all the other patrons aboard. But enough about the patron group. Brian, I still have so many players I want to talk about. First of all, I'm going to ask you a selfish question. I made a move. I want to know if you agree with it. I dropped Brian Campbell. I had been holding on to him. My league, as you know, has a defense points category, so defense are elevated, and I drafted Brian Campbell. I thought I was pretty smart because he seems to usually be good for 40 points a season. He's been doing nothing so far this year. I dropped him. I picked up maybe the flavor of the week or maybe the next future superstar of the NHL, Elias Lindholm. Lindholm has been on fire lately. In the past five games, he has... Five goals and two assists. Seven points in five games. Five goals. The Carolina Hurricanes are finally picking things up. And no, Brian, it's not because Alex Seven is finally putting up points. But maybe it's in part due to Elias Lindholm. So what do you think? This guy is like 19 years old. Is he someone that people should be rushing to grab now because he's going to be a future keeper for life? Or is this the kind of thing that in a few weeks we'll be talking about how Elias Lindholm is a huge snoozer and you should get him off your team? I'd say it's more the former than the latter. He's having a really nice run, and frankly, he's deserved it. He is playing on a Carolina team that is stopping none of the shots while he's on the ice and scoring on none of the shots they take while he's on the ice. He's actually due to still see a bit more of positive regression, or what I like to call progression towards the main And he is seeing good minutes. He's seeing a fair amount of his team's offensive zone starts. Actually, all of the Hurricanes are seeing about the same number of offensive zone starts. The only two that stick out as seeing easier minutes than the rest are probably Victor Rask and Zach Boychuk. Everybody else is seeing a fairly relatively even level of competition. But Lindholm is one of the few who's doing really well with it. People around him on the player usage chart I'm looking at right now are Jeff Skinner and Nathan Gerby, who aren't doing a whole lot themselves. And even to the right, which is better on this usage chart, is the name that we've brought up once in this podcast already. And I'm reticent to do it again, but I'm just going to say it quickly. Alexander Semin. Oh man, I should write a Reddit post saying I hate Alex Semin. <laughs> it could go right beside the guy who wrote I hate Marion Gaborik. And I would write back to that post saying just wait for goal game on the way. Yeah, this is in 2007. But go on, Elias Lindholm. Good depth add in deeper leagues. And if you really want to swing for the fences, well, actually, no, leave him. He's still on the Carolina Hurricanes at the end of the day. But yes, he's a decent add if you're in like even like a middle-ish deep league right now. And while we're on the Hurricanes, I want to also bring up another guy who's really caught my eye lately, Justin Falk is pretty much becoming their number one defenseman. Last year, it was possible that he would get that role, but it ended up going more to maybe being shared at least with Andrzej Sekera. But Justin Falk is really turning it on lately. Going into tonight's game against Washington, he had five points in 12 games. He got two assists tonight, 
Something that really jumps out at me is his shots on goal. 33 shots so far in 12 games. And recently, like just looking at his last five games, you see like 5, 3, 4, 7, 4. These are forward amount of shots or maybe like Eric Carlson amounts of shots. And in those same five games, he has five points, five points in five games, one goal and four assists. So Justin Falk, is he, I guess it's pretty much the same question as Elias Lindholm. Is he sort of like the future franchise defenseman of Carolina? And I guess if yes, does that actually mean anything? Well, the jury's out on whether or not that means anything. We'll see how they manage their team from the front office over the next few years. But yes, it does seem to me as though he is becoming the go-to guy, surprisingly, has supplanted Andrej Sekera by a fair bit in terms of the share of power play time that he gets. Ryan Murphy was actually getting the most until he was demoted to the minors, and now Justin Falk gets that crown. A franchise defenseman also plays the toughest minutes, and he's right up there with Andrej Sekera. Andrej Sekera actually has the hardest minutes on the team, but not far off from him is, is Justin Falk. So they're both being relied on for defensive and offensive roles. And Justin Falk, like you said, you mentioned his shot totals. He's in the top 20 right now amongst D-men in shots per 60 minutes. Around names like John Carlson, Jason Garrison, Dougie Hamilton, Zbigniew McCallick, and ahead of Duncan Keith, actually, who is uncharacteristically shooting a little low right now. Again, we're going to say this for another couple weeks. Still a little early in the season for the numbers to shake out very accurately, but it's something worth commending him for, at the very least. Speaking of commendable defensemen, now I want to talk about a guy who kind of makes Justin Falk look like a piece of garbage. That is a very poetic simile, Elon. Very artful. (laughs) Okay, I can't believe we haven't talked about him yet this season, but we have to. We would be doing everyone a disservice and him a disservice. Mark Giordano of the Calgary Flames. Okay, in case you didn't notice, he had 15 points in 15 games going into tonight. Then he picked up a goal and two assists, which means he now has 18 points in 16 games on the season. We talked about him last year near the end. He was injured for a lot of the year. And when he came back, he was putting up a point per game pace. And we were saying he's pretty much third for defense points per game behind Carlson and Duncan Keith. He might be a good guy to draft this year. And if you drafted him, you've of course been rewarded. He's like among the league leaders in points. Brian, is it time that we consider Mark Giordano an elite defenseman? Is he, along with Eric Carlson and P.K. Subban, a guy you want to grab early on because he's going to just rake in the points all season? He's not there yet, and I'm not sure if he ever will be. I don't think his ceiling is that high, but that said, it is pretty high and maybe higher than people are still giving him credit for. He did come out of nowhere in terms of fantasy production last season, putting up 47 points in 64 games. That's a 60-point pace over a course of a full 82-game season. Perhaps there's a chance he could do that now. I don't think he's going to put up 82 points this year. However, I do just want to make sure that we also appreciate Mark Giordano for being a fantastic defenseman. He gets the toughest minutes on a pretty weak team, uh, that being the Calgary Flames. And he and his defensive partner, TJ Brody, are the only positive possession defensemen on his team. Like I said, despite the fact that they see the toughest competition and the fewest number of offensive zone starts relative to the rest of their teammates. Well, hey, a 62-point pace, Brian, that pretty much is an elite fantasy defenseman. Like, that seems to me like what I would expect from a guy like P.K. Subban. Yeah, well, Giordano, he's done it once so far, and he's playing like he can do it again. 
I'm not going to go ahead and say he's there yet. I'd like to see it for like two seasons before we actually elevate someone to that status. He's a bit of a late bloomer at 31 years old this year. And so I don't know how much further up he can climb, but hey, I really like him while it lasts. And his defense partner, TJ Brody, is younger in age. So if you are looking for a depth defenseman to add, it's probably impossible that you're going to get Giordano, but consider his defense partner, TJ Brody. Yeah, I guess it definitely is worth pointing out that he has 14 points himself. So clearly he's also having an amazing season so far. I feel like this happened last year, where at the start of the year, the Calgary Flames were having a bunch of guys with a lot of points and people were picking up the Flames. And by the end of the year everything's sort of tempered off. So maybe that's something people should be afraid of. Yeah, and actually you should expect the whole Calgary Flames team to taper off a little bit. What they're doing right now is probably not going to continue for the rest of the season. Again, they're seeing uncharacteristically high possession numbers. Now word is is that they're playing a very effective system and playing it well. But I think at the end of the day, the disparity in talent between them and the rest of their conference is going to put them more likely where they belong in the lower third of the league and perhaps even like lower fourth or fifth. All right. And on the roller coaster ride that is an episode of Keeping Carlson, we were up with Mark Giordano. Let's go down now with Darcy Kemper, who started the year as like the big you know, surprise of the goalies. Like, he grabbed onto that number one goalie spot on Minnesota and did it in style. Just was getting shutout after shutout at the start of the year. Now, all of a sudden, the shine is starting to wear off. In his last few starts, he's got save percentages of 895, 750, 893. He has 1950 in there against Dallas, but then 857, and today, 871. So he's usually under 900 for his past few starts, which isn't very good, hasn't led to a lot of wins. Is Darcy Kemper going to, A, be a good goalie this year? Is he even going to hold on to the number one goalie status on Minnesota? What do you do if you're a Darcy Kemper owner? Which, Brian, I know you are. Well, if you're in a deep league, you have no choice but to hang on and wait. That's a choice I have to make. He is the only goalie I have aside from Rask who's guaranteed to play minutes, and those minutes are valuable whether he does well or not. I still have faith in the Wild in being a good team this year, a good enough team to give him at least a handful of wins as the season moves on. His numbers, well, I don't know. You know, we we haven't seen enough from him, and I know you hear me say that a lot, but really, I mean, even last year, in terms of minutes played, he was not in the top, you know, several goalies in the league, and it's hard to say what his true talent level is. I mean, even just two, three seasons ago, he was playing a few games in the ECHL with the Ontario Reign spelled like R-E-I-G-N, for those not familiar with the team, and the Orlando Solar Bears. So I don't really know where he's going to go from here. What I do know is that if you have an IR spot or an IR plus spot and Josh Harding is available in your league, I think it would be nice to pick him up. It seems as though Nicholas Backstrom isn't going to pose a huge threat to Darcy Kemper in taking the 1A or number one job away from him. However, if this performance continues from Kemper, I would expect that Harding gets a fair shake even despite the sort of unseemly circumstances surrounding his injury and suspension before the year began. If you're in a shallow league, I suppose you could shop around and see if there's a better option. And I'm talking about leagues where there are still like 10 starting caliber goalies on the free agent list. You could probably look around. I would be tempted to hang on to him despite how awful his last several games look. Of course, if this was Andrzej Pavlich, I would be hammering him so hard 
but he's not. Kemper, I think I have a bit of a soft spot for, and maybe you're hearing that in my analysis, I'm totally upfront about it, but he did help me win my league last year and help me win my first couple of weeks of matchups this year. So I'm willing to offer him a little bit of patience for what he's done for me already. If he's never done anything for you, you might feel differently and feel free to act accordingly. I don't see any guaranteed good numbers coming back his way. Although amongst goalies who played at least 1,500 minutes last year, he was sort of right in the middle of the pack. He had decent, even strength, save percentage numbers. But again, small sample. Yeah, I guess in hindsight, he could have potentially been a really great sell-high candidate. Obviously, right now, if you have him, you're kind of stuck with him, unless, like you say, you're in a shallow league and you're going to actually consider dropping him uh, for a free agent goalie. But okay, let's keep this show rolling. Brian, I know you have some players of note that you want to talk about, so let's get to them. We've been getting a lot of tweets about a player who everyone has talked about several times this week, Vladimir Tarasenko. We had one from at NJD Advocate that asked, is Tarasenko the real deal? We also had one from at Fantasy Fan NHL, who I'm not surprised follows us, and he said, should I sell high on Tarasenko? And my answer to that one specifically is no. No, you're not selling high on Tarasenko if you sell him now. If you look at his numbers, they look great. He has the third most shots per 60 in the league of forwards who have played more than 150 minutes so far this year. And in the same group, he has the sixth highest points per 60 rate. The thing that's actually a little scary is that every part of his numbers looks pretty normal right now. There's no reason for me to think right away that what he's doing is not sustainable. He is seeing amongst the most offensive zone starts on his team, so he's going to need that to continue to be able to keep doing what he's doing. But there's no reason to think it won't, since it's working so well. Nine goals in 13 games is certainly a difficult pace to keep up, but if he keeps getting shots on goal at the rate he currently is, I think he'll be fine. He has 55 shots on goal so far. So even with nine goals, he's still quote-unquote, only shooting 16.4%. Expect that to drop a little bit, but all in all, I think you would be making a big mistake to think you're selling high on Tarasenko. Ride him as long as you can and be proud of yourself and give yourself a little pat on the back for having him on your team this year because it's not going to be as easy to get him on your squad when next year begins. Unless it's a keeper league, in which case you're set. Yes, in which case you're set. And I just also want to compare him briefly to the St. Louis Blue who was lighting the lamp last year, Alex Steen, who we said on the show was doing it at an unsustainable pace. And that turned out to be, well, somewhat true. He hung on for a lot longer than anyone thought he would, including myself. But eventually he did regress. I don't see a similar drop coming for Tarasenko at this point. Yeah, I remember on our patron cast on Wednesday, we were talking about sort of the league leaders and shots on goal. And, you know, it's really cool to see Tarasenko right up there, like third in the league, like you were saying. Another name that I remember you brought up saying he was a really surprising guy to see so high is Scott Hartnell. And that was a good heads up to the patrons because he scored two power play goals tonight. Scott Hartnell, man, I guess he's been around the league for a while. He's always been a reliable player, especially in a league that counts some of these peripherals. But all of a sudden this year, he's giving his owners a point per game pace. Is that sustainable? Well, let me tell you first what was unsustainable, and that was that after 41 shots on goal, he only had one goal 
until the pair of multi-goal games that he's put up recently. He sits sixth in the league in shots per 60 minutes and is, well, he's got a lot to show for it. He has three goals and nine assists for 12 points on the season, and he's gotten new life in Columbus. I don't know why Philadelphia traded him for RJ Umberger because they are already losing that trade. I feel quite badly But he was generally like a two to three shots on goal per game guy in Columbus. Now he's almost four shots on goal per game. And perhaps that's because they're relying on him more for offense with the rash of injuries they have. I don't know how it will all shake out when they have a healthy roster and the lines are shuffled around accordingly. But for now, I feel like there might be a couple leagues that he's still sitting in free agency just because of his name, but he's never been a bad player. If you look back over the last several seasons, he's always between, you know, 45 to 60 points. And if your league counts penalty minutes or hits, you also get some bonus value in there too. All right, let's say that that, Brian, was our Players of Note segment. Now let's go to the lightning round. Give us two lightning rounds and then we'll do a snoozer. And that'll be the show. I know we're supposed to be ending, but let's just let's just give a little more. Give us our lightning round. Okay, Sergey Gonchar is back in the Dallas Stars lineup. However, he is on the third pairing. He is fourth on their power play depth chart, which, as we know, is pretty worthless as a defenseman. He had 22 points in 76 games played last year. I see him getting picked up and owned in some leagues. He's not getting any younger. He is not fantasy relevant. After what has been an admittedly glorious career, he is riding off into the sunset. You can probably stay away from Sergei Gonchar, and maybe, Elon, we could have saved him for the snoozer. He is a snoozer if he's on your roster. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely get what you're saying, and I don't disagree, but also, you know, you can't harp on a guy who's been injured all season. He got an assist tonight for what it's worth, but yeah, probably not worth having at this point. Let's move on to a player from Gonchar's former team, the Washington Capitals. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on Andre Burakovsky, but I am going to zero in on what I feel is one of his unheralded line mates, and that is Marcus Johansson. I picked him up in one of my pools recently, and he rewarded me with a five-game point streak, scoring four goals and three assists in that time. He's got 10 points in 13 games played on the season, and I feel like it's been very quiet. 10 points. Now, he only has 25 shots on goal in 13 games, which is not so exciting. I'm not sure he's going to keep that pace up. In fact, I'm sure he won't keep up a pace of 10 points in 13 games played. However, he's been on the cusp of breaking out for like three seasons now. I feel like maybe this could be the year that he breaks 50 points, especially because he's on that first power play unit in Washington. So he gets to play up front with Alex Ovechkin, Nicholas Backstrom, and Troy Brower with Mike Green on the back end. He has three points with the man advantage so far out of his 10. So that's not even accounting for a huge percentage of the points he's scored. I would at the very least add him to your watch list. And if Johansson is someone that people should be adding to their watch list, why don't you tell us someone that people should be removing from their watch lists and their rosters if they still have them? Who's your snoozer of the week? The Keeping Carlson patented snoozer of the week. We're going to stay in Washington and name Evgeny Kuznetsov in this infamous position on keeping Carlson. He has six points in 12 games played so far this year. He's on a better pace in terms of shots on goal and he saw power play time, but he was a healthy scratch last game and he came back and played nine minutes in the one that followed. It's not like he wasn't given opportunity. He had the highest 
ratio of offensive zone starts amongst Washington Capitals forwards. And okay, I guess you couldn't expect much out of him, though, when you're playing with Jay Beagle and Jason Shimera. But he was also playing on Marcus Johansson's line with Troy Brower and wasn't able to do a whole lot. I would hold off. All the hype has sort of died down on him. I would quietly drop him or remove him from my watch list. You can keep an eye on him because... I mean, I still think that the talent is probably there. It's just a matter of when he gets an appropriate chance to show it. And I don't know when that will be. So for the near future, you can feel safe in calling Evgeny Kuznetsov a snoozer. Speaking of snoozers, Brian, it's time we put this show to bed. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'd love to get your feedback, so hit us up on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. Let you know what you agree or disagree with. And if you feel like we're helping you in your fantasy hockey league, you could always head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That's a great way to support the show. Doesn't cost you anything. And you give us some exposure without, you know, maybe exposing us to people in your league in particular. So let's cue that outro music. And Brian, can you go ahead and read us the credits? This episode of Keeping Carlson was presented by Daily Faceoff with the support of our patrons over at patreon.com slash keepingcarlson. To research the show, we used Behind the Net, War on Ice, Puckalytics, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Great job, Brian, and we'll be back at you with another episode of Keeping Carlson next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carlson.